President Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, says Robert Mueller is not going to indict President Trump, but Robert Mueller is still digging. Michael Cohen finds himself on the wrong end of leaks again, and the media lie about President Trump and immigration. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. So today is the day, folks. If you've not heard already, I'm taking the Ben Shapiro Show live to audiences in Dallas and Phoenix. Pre-sale tickets have been going extremely fast, particularly our VIP packages. I think there are very few left. In fact, there's been such demand from our subscribers. We've asked the venues to open up 50 additional VIP tickets at each event because we're getting a lot of complaints that they were sold out already. Today is the final day for premium subscribers to get your pre-sale tickets. So if you're not a subscriber, you should subscribe so that way you can get access to the tickets because tonight at 10 p.m. local time, everyone gets access to the tickets. Tonight at 10 p.m., Everyone gets access to the tickets, whether you're a member, whether you're not a member. You can now buy a ticket at 10 p.m. tonight, wherever you are. Seats will go fast for both VIP and general sales tickets. If you are not already a subscriber, again, be sure to sign up now and get that pre-sale code, and you can get early access to the best seats in the house. Go to dailywire.com slash events to get your pre-sale tickets and additional info. Again, that's dailywire.com slash events to get your pre-sale tickets and additional info. I'm really pumped to be bringing the show live to folks. The tickets are going incredibly fast. I'm getting a lot of notes from people you know, begging, pleading for extra tickets. So we opened up a few extras. So please go check it out. Uh, and um, I, I promise it's going to be a fun event and I, I want to meet you. It'll be a big blast. Before I get into the news, and there's a lot of news to get into today. First, I want to say thanks to our sponsors over at LegalZoom. So pretend you're in the government and you need legal help for just a second. Well, the people you would go to are the folks over at LegalZoom so that you're not spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on legal work because attorneys are super expensive. You're going to pay 300 bucks an hour for probably an associate. When I was an associate at a top law firm, they were charging 250 bucks an hour for my time. That was like 10 years ago. Okay, you could otherwise go to LegalZoom and then you don't have to pay that. Two million Americans have used LegalZooms to start their business with LLCs and corporation and more. But even after your business is set up, LegalZoom can still help you out. Things like lease agreements, changing tax laws, contract reviews, they're all part of running your own business. But these are precisely the kinds of legal hurdles that do take time and effort away from your growing business, which is why LegalZoom has created their business legal plan. So this is pretty awesome. With it, you get legal advice for your business from vetted independent attorneys and tax professionals available in every state. You also receive access to NDAs, lease agreements, and more. And the best part is you're not going to get charged by the hour because LegalZoom is not a law firm. Instead, you just pay one low upfront price. So this is going to save you a ton of money. Legal costs are extraordinarily expensive. Check out LegalZoom's business legal plan at LegalZoom.com right now and you get special savings when you enter promo code BEN at checkout. Again, LegalZoom.com. Enter pro promo code BEN at checkout. LegalZoom is where life meets legal. Let them know we sent you by using that promo code BEN and get their special deal. Alrighty, so the news of the day is that the media are just garbage. I'm sorry. I've been railing against the use of the term fake news for years on this program when it does not apply. When President Trump says that it's fake news, for example, that the media are misreporting his crowd size, that's not fake news. But this week, I have to tell you, it's an amazing thing. I'm getting notes from people. I'm getting texts from people, people who did not vote for Trump in the last election, who are now telling me they're turning me into a Trumpkin. The media are turning me into a huge Donald Trump fan. Why? Because the great arbiters of truth and decency, these wonderful arbiters, of all that is good in the world, it turns out they are abjectly lying about issues ranging from Hamas to now MS-13. So the Democratic new playbook, I guess, for 2018 is defend Hamas, defend MS-13, and rip on the NRA. That's the new playbook from the Democrats, and the media are parroting that every step of the way. What am I so hot and bothered about today? Well, we'll get to the Hamas coverage in just a second, but here's what I'm really hot and bothered about today. President Trump yesterday was doing an event with a bunch of sheriffs from all over the country. And one of the sheriffs mentioned MS-13. And President Trump responded in this way. Here's clip three. We have people coming into the country, trying to come in. We're stopping a lot of them. But we're taking people out of the country. You wouldn't believe how bad these people are. These aren't people. These are animals. And we're taking them out of the country at a level and at a rate that's never happened before. Okay, so here is the reality. What Trump was specifically, specifically talking about was MS-13, because the line that led up to this was a sheriff saying, we can't actually deport MS-13 people. The line leading up to this, there's a sheriff named Mims who said, thank you. There could be an MS-13 member I know about. If they don't reach a certain threshold, I cannot tell ICE about it. And then Trump responded to the MS-13 reference by saying, we have people coming into the country, but we're taking people out of the country. You wouldn't believe how bad these people are. These aren't people, these are animals. So how did the media cover this? He's specifically talking about MS-13. It is obvious that he's talking about MS-13. It is clear that he's talking about MS-13. MS-13's actual tagline, I mean, this is their actual marketing line to their own members, is rape, steal, control. These are not good people. They are, in fact, as close to animals as you will find in human beings. So how do the media report this? Let me show you how the media report this. Here's the New York Times. This is what they tweeted out. 
Trump lashed out at undocumented immigrants during a White House meeting, calling those trying to breach the country's borders animals. No, he didn't. He did not lash out at all illegal immigrants. He lashed out at MS-13, and they are animals. There have been several stories in the last couple of years about MS-13 members literally ripping hearts out of bodies while the people are still alive, beheading their political enemies, bringing drugs into the country. MS-13 are some of the worst people on planet Earth. If the, if the descriptor animal does not apply to MS-13, it legitimately applies to no one. And yet the media are trying to play it as though Trump is not talking about MS-13. Instead, Trump was talking about illegal immigrants at large. Now, listen, Trump has said some bad stuff about illegal immigration generally. He's been overbroad in his language. But that's not what happened here. What happened right here was that he was ripping on MS-13. And the media decided to deliberately take him out of context. And it wasn't just the New York Times. It was C-SPAN. It was CNN. It was the New York Times. It was the Washington Post. They all decided to report this as though Trump was talking about illegal immigrants more broadly. They were lying. They were lying. Okay, and these lies have been very typical of the media this entire week. This entire week, we've heard from the media that innocents were killed on the border between Gaza and Israel. Except for the fact that Hamas admitted yesterday that 50 of the 62 people killed were Hamas members and another three were members of Islamic Jihad. So 53 out of the 62 people killed were active terrorists who worked for active terrorist groups designated as such by the State Department. And the media covered it as though this is all Trump's fault, that evil, evil Trump and Hamas, a bunch of innocent folks. And now it's MS-13. Like, really, this is the train you want to jump on, media? You hate Trump so much that you're going to deliberately take him out of context? And then you wonder why we don't trust the media? And one of the great myths about President Trump is that people on the right don't like the media because Trump doesn't like the media. Nonsense. People on the right like Trump because Trump doesn't like the media. Okay, we didn't like the media a long time ago. As I said at CPAC, my entire career, we've spent thinking the media are totally full of it. I remember my parents canceling their subscriptions to the Los Angeles Times in the mid-90s over their coverage of Israel. The, the, the media has always been egregiously bad, but this last week has been just an incredible demonstration of how bad they are. And this is why. You wonder why people are resonating to President Trump? You wonder why? Because Trump will take a stand like MS-13 are a bunch of animals or like Hamas is bad. And when they put people in front, when they put terrorists behind human shields in an attempt to get people killed for the cameras, that's bad. And he's right about both those things. And the media, because they hate Trump so much, decide to side with Hamas and side with MS-13. And then we're supposed to side with the media. We're supposed to believe the media's narrative about Trump. We're supposed to believe what the media have to say about truth and honor and how they're just firefighters running to the fire. They have no agenda. They're objective. They're truthful. Bull bleep. Okay, that is nonsense. And everybody knows that's nonsense. Now, members of the media, you want to regain your credibility? You wonder why the American people don't trust you? Because you don't deserve their trust. Because you are not acting in trustworthy fashion. Because you are acting, in many cases, as fake news and in many other cases, as biased news. This is really egregious stuff. This is what's going to put people into Trump's camp. Because this week, I got to tell you, I was thinking about President Trump and what he did with regard to Jerusalem and what he's been saying about MS-13. And, and then I've been watching the media. And I got to tell you, if the media want me to make a decision between Trump and Hamas, that's not much of a choice. That's not much of a choice. I've been very critical of President Trump's character. But you can't lie about the guy to get him, members of the media, you idiots. You can't lie about him. You can't fib about him. You can't manipulate events on the ground. You can't ignore the truth about what's happening all over the world simply in order to slap at President Trump. If you do, it's just going to drive people into Trump's camp. I was talking to a top member of the Trump administration. This is a few months ago. And we, I was discussing, you know, how is Trump going to win the votes necessary in order to win re-election? Like, do you have a plan for this? Because George W. Bush lost the popular vote in 2000 by 500,000 votes. And then he won by about 1.5 million votes against John Kerry. But he had to pick up about 10 to 11 million votes between 2000 and 2004 in order to win re-election because the electorate expands every year. Well, President Trump lost the popular vote this year by, or this election cycle by about two and a half million votes. That means that he's going to have to make up probably 12 million votes in order for him to win re-election. So I said to this member of the Trump administration, how do you plan on winning 12 million additional votes? How do you plan on bringing a bunch of people over? And there wasn't a great answer. So part of it is going to be good policy, obviously, but part of it is going to be shift, shifting definitions of Trump. Well, one of the ways that you can shift the definition of Trump is not by shifting who Trump is, but by the media making themselves so much worse than they already were that you feel like you're being forced to choose between the media and Democrats who are lying on a routine basis and defending the worst people on the planet and President Trump. Now, there's a, a case that was made during the last election cycle that it was a binary choice between Hillary Clinton and President Trump. This was not a logical case that I agreed with. I thought there was a third choice, and it was to stay home. But... The worse the Democrats get, the worse the media get, the more it looks like a binary choice. 
And the better Trump governs, the more it looks like a binary choice. You want to push people into Trump's camp, guys. You are doing an excellent job of it. Speaking of doing an excellent job of pushing people into Trump's camp, there's a, there's a person named Juanita Scarlett. And Juanita Scarlett went to a party at Don Lemon's house. Okay, and Don Lemon had at his house Errol Lewis, who's a commentator at CNN, and Margaret Hoover, who's another commentator at CNN, and Don Lemon is a reporter at CNN, and guess who was over at Don Lemon's house? And they all took a selfie together. It was Michael Avenatti, okay, the lawyer for Stormy Daniels. There they are, just grinning right there. Look at that, the objective journalist grinning with Michael Avenatti. Now, imagine for a second that, say, Michael Cohen had been invited to Sean Hannity's house. You think people might have gone nuts? They did, okay? There was that entire week where all we could talk about was the fact that Michael Cohen and Sean Hannity had been discussing issues. But somehow, Michael Avenatti going to Don Lemon's house and hanging out there, right? That's not a problem at all. And then you wonder why we think the media are not objective. You wonder why so many people are turning to President Trump and saying, not, not interested in, in, in siding against Trump and with the media. It's just... It's insanity. It's total insanity. And if the media wish to keep alienating people, maybe they do. Maybe that's their goal. Maybe their goal is to make President Trump, Trump uh, president for another term. They could do it. They could make it happen. All they have to do is continue being who they are. I, I wrote a column earlier this week about comedy in, in culture and how the right wing's response to comedy is not for us to generate our own comedians. It's to elect Trump because Trump's a giant middle finger to the entire comedic establishment. You make a bunch of Trump jokes about Trump. You make a bunch of jokes about us. Well, screw you. We'll elect that guy. Well, the same thing is true of the media. Remember, in 2012, Newt Gingrich nearly won the Republican nomination based simply on ripping on an anchor at one of his debates. That's how much we despise the media. And we don't despise the media for no reason. We despise the media because since 2001, when Bias came out by Bernard Goldberg, there has been a 20-year campaign by the right against bias in the media. And the media's response has not been to try and moderate, to try and hire some people who are conservative, to try and hire some people who might balance things out. Their goal has not been to strip out their own opinions. It's been to exacerbate the involvement of their own opinions. Now, maybe it helps their ratings. Maybe it's good for CNN. Maybe it's good for MSNBC. But that just demonstrates once and for all that they care more about ratings than they do about truth. I mean, nowhere has that been truer than with regard to the situation along the, the border in Gaza. I'm going to talk about that in just one second. But first, I want to say thanks to our friends over at My Patriot Supply. So, tornadoes in the south, three earthquakes in four days in Oregon. Kilauea is erupting in Hawaii. No matter where you live, there's always the possibility of natural disasters, right? There's always that possibility. And most of these strike with no warning. The truth is you are the best first responder. The alternative is to wait for the government. And, you know, that might not be the best idea because the fact is that the chances that the government is going to show up on time, not really great. Not really great. It'll take them a little while to get to you at the very best. This is why you need to get this Ben Shapiro special offer for My Patriot Supply. Buy one four-week emergency food kit for just 198 bucks and get one for free. Again, one four-week emergency food kit for just $198 and get one for free. It's a two-for-one, so you can buy one, get one free. And when you purchase one right now, My Patriot Supply sends you that additional four-week food kit for free. 888-803-1413. Order online at preparewithben.com. That's preparewithben.com. The food lasts in storage for 25 years and it is shipped for free. So you just buy it once and you're not going to have to worry about it again. Instead, you buy it, you stick it in the closet, and then you're the most prepared person on the block. Go check it out, 888-803-1413 or online at preparewithben.com. That is preparewithben.com. Go check it out. You will be very happy that you did. Okay, so speaking of the media coverage on the on, on the Gaza border, there is a piece today from Kinley Terpaz. Kinley Terpaz is a, is a founder and CEO of the Kibbutz Hadati Educational Network in Israel. And he has a report at Times of Israel on what actually happened on the border with Gaza. So he says, he says, I want to testify to what I saw and heard. It was a tremendous supreme effort from our side to prevent in every possible way Palestinian deaths and injuries. Of course, the primary mission was to prevent hundreds of thousands of Gazans from infiltrating into our territory. That kind of invasion would be perilous, mortally dangerous to the nearby communities, would permit terrorists disguised as civilians to enter our kibbutz and Mashab communities, and would leave us with no choice but to target every single infiltrator. That's why our soldiers were directed to prevent infiltration in a variety of ways, using live ammunition only as a last resort. The IDF employs many creative means of reducing friction with Gazans and uses numerous methods, most of which are not made public, to prevent them from reaching the fence. In addition, over the past few weeks, there have been serious efforts to save the lives of children and civilians who have been pushed to the front lines by Hamas or trying to hide behind them in order to infiltrate and attack Israel. 
when there is no alternative and live ammunition must be used to stop those who storm the fence, the soldiers make heroic and sometimes dangerous efforts not to kill and to only injure those on the other side, which is why you see so many leg wounds on the side of Hamas. The IDF stationed senior commanders at every confrontation point to ensure that every shot is approved and backed up by a responsible figure with proper authority. Every staging area has an especially large number of troops in order to make sure that soldiers are not put in life-threatening situations where they'll have no choice but to fire indiscriminately. A situation where thousands of people rush you is frightening, even terrifying. It is extremely difficult to show restraint, and it requires calm, mature professionalism. 62 dead is an enormous number, but I can testify from firsthand experience, every bullet, every hit is carefully reported, documented, and investigated in Excel spreadsheets. Literally. I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. So, again... The, the, the media are reporting this as though it was an indiscriminate kill fest over at the Gaza border, even while Hamas is admitting it was not an indiscriminate kill fest over at the Gaza border. And the Israelis didn't have much of a choice here. What do you want everybody to just run through the border and then you have to mow down hundreds of people? Mow down hundreds of people? But the media have covered it as though this is all Israel's fault. And the media know. The media know exactly what they are doing. There's no doubt that the media know exactly what they are saying. By the way, speaking of the media malfeasance, the AP has now deleted its tweet from Wednesday on Trump's animals comments about immigrants because it wasn't made clear he was speaking after a comment about gang members. So now the media are going to have to walk back all of this in real time. They're going to have to walk back all of this in real time. Again, not shocking. But look how the Democrats played this up when it first came out. Chuck Schumer, the Senate major- minority leader, he tweeted out, when all of our great-great-grandparents came to America, they weren't animals and these people aren't either supposedly referring to illegal immigrants. Okay, when my great-great-grandparents came to America, they didn't join gangs and cut the hearts out of living human beings. I'm pretty sure Chuck Schumer's didn't either. But the media malfeasance here is falling right into President Trump's hands. So I guess I should be happy about it. I guess I should be happy. It's making Republicans more popular. But I'm more unhappy about untruth than I am happy about the effects of the untruth, even if they cut in my favor. Okay, meanwhile... There's a lot of news today breaking in the Mueller case, a lot of situ- a lot of discussion about what's going on with Rob Mueller. Rudy Giuliani, who is Trump's new lawyer, he was on Laura Ingram's show last night, and he said that Robert Mueller has now announced that he will not, in fact, indict President Trump. Uh, if they subpoena us, challenge the subpoena. The same reason they can't indict him constitutionally. Which Mueller agreed today. He's going to abide by no indictment of the president. But I don't think they agree to the process question, which is the same reason they can't indict him, they can't issue a subpoena to him. And remember, Clinton opposed a subpoena, and then he voluntarily complied. He didn't give up presidential prerogative. And then his administration wrote a memo saying they can't do that. So legally speaking, it is true that the president could be indicted by Robert Mueller. Probably Robert Mueller said, look, I'd rather leave this to the political process as opposed to a criminal indictment if, in fact, he has anything. This doesn't mean that President Trump is off the hook with regard to Robert Mueller. Rudy Giuliani says, listen, there's no collusion. There's no evidence of collusion. But he does say, well, there's kind of evidence that there was intent to collude. But that is not the same thing as collusion, which is, of course, exactly what I said on yesterday's show. Their inability to reach a conclusion that is obvious and their unwillingness to recognize the damage this does to our country all over the world. There's no reason for this investigation. There never was a good reason for it in the first place. This was engineered by Comey with the, with the, with the, the, the report, not the report, the, the interview thing that he wrote that he should have uh, never revealed. So now I want to go through the, the full news about what Robert Mueller is doing, because there's a lot of news that broke yesterday on this. Well, the news begins with the Senate Intel report. So President Trump's son, Donald Jr., was responsible for setting up a meeting with a Russian lawyer named Natalia Veselnitskaya at Trump Tower. Present at this meeting supposedly were Jared Kushner. Uh, I believe uh, Paul Manafort was present at the meeting, if I'm not mistaken, uh, and uh, and other members, top, top members of the Trump administration. Apparently, Kushner got up and left after about five minutes, uh, and there were other people who were there who also left, realizing the thing was a boondoggle. But the original pitch by the Russian lawyer and her and her advocate, who was a friend of the Trump family, was that she was going to give them information about Hillary Clinton. And Donald Trump Jr. had written that they were very excited about that, and the email exchange with with this guy. Uh, who had been pitching the Russian lawyer, suggested that the Russian government was supportive of President Trump in the election cycle, and Trump Jr. expressed his enthusiasm for that. Well, the Senate interviewed Donald Jr., then they released hundreds of pages of interview transcript yesterday. The Associated Press reports on it. They say, questioned intently by a Senate committee, President Donald Trump's son struck a firmly unapologetic tone, deflected many queries, and said he didn't think there was anything wrong with meeting a Russian lawyer at Trump Tower in hopes of election season dirt on Hillary Clinton, according to transcripts released on Wednesday. Trump Jr., speaking in a closed-door interview last year with the Senate Judiciary Committee, said he did not give much thought to the idea that the June 9, 2016 meeting was part of a Russian government effort to help his father in the presidential race. He said, I don't know that it alarmed me, 
But like I said, I don't know. And I don't know that I was all that focused on it at the time. The committee released about 2,500 pages of interview transcript and other documents tied to the New York meeting, which Trump Jr. attended. The transcripts also show some new details and, and they, they show how the meeting was arranged and efforts afterward to mitigate the political damage from the meeting itself. The transcripts also reflect an aggressive Russian outreach to Trump before and after the New York meeting, including an effort to arrange a follow-up get-together that November with a member of the transition team. The follow-up never happened, however. Rob Goldstone, who is the, the fixer-upper, he promised him very he promised Trump Jr. very interesting information from a well-connected Russian lawyer, including documents that would incriminate Hillary Clinton, and Trump Jr. responded via email, if it's what you say, I love it. That came out last year. Throughout the private Senate interview, Trump Jr. said he didn't recall if he had talked with his father about it. He didn't there was apparently a, a call in the call log uh, several days before the meeting took place with a caller with a blocked number. Trump Jr. said he didn't recall who the person was and didn't know if his father used the blocked number. I have to imagine that Mueller is going to find out whether that is the case or not. In any case, there is no actual information that suggests that information passed hands between the Trump campaign and the Russian government or that there was open coordination or covert coordination between the Russian government and the Trump campaign. However, however, if you had this information... Right. If this information was available to Robert Mueller or to James Comey or to anybody else, it would not be out of line to launch an investigation based on this information. Okay. And there's a lot of talk today about witch hunt, witch hunt, witch hunt. I agree. There's been no actual evidence presented to date of serious collusion between the Trump campaign and everybody else. But that's not the same thing as saying the investigation itself was initiated for bad reasons or that it's been conducted in the wrong way. I'll explain what I mean in just a second, because I think that we have to stick to the facts as much as we possibly can when it comes to this Mueller investigation. And I want to break it down for you in just a moment. First, I want to say thanks to our sponsors over at Policy Genius. So you don't have life insurance. You don't have life insurance because you thought about it. And you thought, eh, I'm going to live today. I'm going to live tomorrow. I'm not going to die ever. Well, wrong you are. One day you will indeed plot. And when you do, you want to make sure that your family has enough money to keep on keeping on. And that's why you need to go over to Policy Genius. 80% of people Think life insurance costs double what it actually does. It's not that expensive. A healthy 35-year-old can get half a million bucks in coverage for less than 30 bucks a month. This is totally worthwhile because once you're dead, you don't have the time to regret it anymore. Policy Genius is the easy way to compare life insurance online. In just five minutes, you can compare quotes from the top insurers to find the best policy for you. Policy Genius has helped over 4 million people shop for insurance, placed over $20 billion in coverage, and they don't just make life insurance easy. They also compare disability insurance and renter's insurance and health insurance. If you care about it, then they can cover it. So if you've been thinking about getting life insurance, go to policygenius.com. It's the easy way to compare the top insurers and find the best policy for you. You'll be saving time, money, and hassle, and it's free. Check it out, Policy Genius, because comparing life insurance does not need to be a pain in the neck. Check out Policy Genius. Make sure that your family is protected. Okay, so... As I say, a bunch of stories released from the sort of Mueller investigation. One was the Senate Intel investigation of Donald Trump or interview with Donald Trump. And this was supposedly uh, th this this demonstrated, obviously, that Donald Trump Jr. was interacting with agents of Russia, maybe in an attempt to collude, but there's no actual evidence of collusion. Then there was this other big story. And this is the one where a lot of folks on the right, I think, are misreading the situation. OK, this story is from The New York Times. It says codename Crossfire Hurricane, the secret origins of the Trump investigation. Now, remember, the going theory here is that the FBI under President Obama was interested in undermining the Trump campaign during the campaign by investigating and then presumably putting out information to undermine President Trump during the campaign. Right? This is the going theory is that this is all trumped up. It was all put together on kind of spit and glue that they just decided they were going to get Trump in the middle of the election cycle, that they worked to let Hillary Clinton off the hook. And then they worked to go after President Trump with nothing to verify it. They worked to target his campaign. Right? He was wiretapped in the words of President Trump that he was targeted. Now, even if President Trump was, quote unquote, wiretapped, he was not wiretapped at Trump Tower. Uh, but even if there was surveillance of particular members of the Trump campaign, like Carter Page, that does not necessarily demonstrate that surveillance was inappropriate or that anything wrong happened with the surveillance. Well, the story from the New York Times yesterday has a lot of people on the right saying that there is something deeply nefarious that was going on at the FBI during the campaign. The, the, the biggest question that I have about this is if you really believe that the FBI and the CIA and the DOJ were all working very hard to try and discredit the Trump campaign and to put out information that Trump was in, in thrall to Russia, then why didn't any of this information come out during the campaign? You were there. I was there. If they wanted to sing Trump during the campaign, wouldn't it have been useful for them to say that Paul Manafort was under, in, was under investigation like from the very first day? Wouldn't it have been useful for them to say that we suspect that there is collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russian government? Wouldn't that be like a useful thing to have put out there on a routine basis? Because it's consumed the news cycle ever since. But most of this stuff broke after Trump was actually elected. 
So if you were inside the quote-unquote deep state and you wanted to take down Trump during the election cycle, why wouldn't you put it out early? Now, the theory is that they didn't put this out early because it was an insurance policy in case Trump became president and they thought Hillary was going to win anyway. That makes no sense. That doesn't make any sense. It's not that this was an insurance policy in case Trump became president. That, that's, that's silly. Okay? Instead, what it sounds a lot more like is, if in, in the theory of the right, these were arsonists. They were trying to set a fire. So if you're trying to set a fire, why wait till the guy's elected president to set the fire? Why not set the fire in the middle of the campaign? That's question number one. Question number two is, can you point to any actual nefarious activity that you would have objected to if Hillary Clinton had been the target of it? So I have a very simple rule that I've been using for years. Put the shoe on the other foot. So I'm going to read this story. And for a second, I want you to assume that it's about Hillary Clinton and not Donald Trump. And then think, are you angry that this investigation was going on in the first place? Because I don't want to impugn people's motives or honor based on partisan concerns. So here it is from the New York Times. Within hours of opening investigation into the Trump campaign's ties to Russia in the summer of 2016, the FBI dispatched a pair of agents to London on a mission so secretive that all but a handful of officials were kept in the dark. Their assignment, which has not been previously reported, was to meet the Australian ambassador who had evidence that one of Donald Trump's advisors knew in advance about Russian election meddling. After tense deliberations between Washington and Canberra, Top Australian officials broke with diplomatic protocol and allowed the ambassador, Alexander Downer, to sit for an FBI interview to describe his meeting with the campaign advisor, George Papadopoulos. The agents summarized their highly unusual interview and sent word to Washington on August 2nd, 2016, two days after the investigation was opened. The report helped provide the foundation for a case that a year ago Thursday became the special counsel investigation. But at the time, a small group of FBI officials knew it by its codename, Crossfire Hurricane. That's the, the name was a reference to the the Rolling Stones lyric, I was born in a crossfire hurricane because obviously now everybody was under investigation. So it was crossfire hurricane. Well, days after they closed their investigation into Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server, agents began scrutinizing the campaign of her Republican rival. The two cases have become inextricably linked in one of the most consequential periods in the history of the FBI. This month, the DOJ is expected to release the findings of its lengthy review of the FBI's conduct in the Clinton case. And the results are sure to renew debate over James Comey and the FBI. All of those questions, I think, are perfectly legit. But here's what people are really worried about. Okay, those decisions stand in contrast to the FBI's handling of Crossfire Hurricane. Not only did agents in that case fall back to their typical policy of silence, but interviews with a dozen current and former government officials and a review of documents show that the FBI was even more circumspect in that case than has been previously known. Many of the officials spoke on condition of anonymity because they were not authorized to discuss the investigation publicly. Agents considered, then rejected, interviewing key Trump associates, which might have sped up the investigation, but risked revealing the existence of the case. Top officials quickly became convinced that they would not solve the case before Election Day, which made them only more hesitant to act. When agents did take bold investigative steps, like interviewing the ambassador, they were shrouded in secrecy. Fearful of leaks, they kept details from political appointees across the street at the DOJ, so they weren't telling the DOJ, fearful that all this stuff was going to leak. The facts, had they leaked, might have devastated the Trump campaign. Trump's future national security advisor, Mike Flynn, was under investigation, as was Paul Manafort. One advisor appeared to have Russian intelligence contact. That would be Papadopoulos. Another was suspected of being a Russian agent himself. That would be Carter Page. The FBI faces a lot of criticism, but here is, is the actual story, right? Buried, in the, buried deep in this New York Times piece. Crossfire Hurricane spawned a case that has brought charges against former Trump officials and more than a dozen Russians. But in the final months of 2016, agents faced great uncertainty about facts and how to respond. So Crossfire Hurricane began exactly 100 days before the presidential election. But if agents were eager to investigate Mr. Trump's campaign, as Trump has suggested, the messages do not reveal it. I cannot believe we are seriously looking at these allegations and the pervasive connections, Strzok wrote, this is Peter Strzok, uh, who is the, uh, one of the FBI agents who is anti-Trump, soon after returning from London. The mood in early meetings was anxious, former officials recalled. Agents had just closed the Clinton investigation. They braced for months of Republican-led hearings over why she was not charged. Crossfire Hurricane was built around the same core of agents and analysts who investigated Mrs. Clinton. None was eager to re-enter presidential politics, former officials said, especially when the agents did not know what would come of the Australian information. So the FBI investigated four unidentified Trump campaign aides in the early months. They were Mike Flynn, Paul Manafort, Carter Page, George Papadopoulos. Flynn had been paid 45000 bucks. By the, Russian, by the Russian government's media arm, that'd be RT, for a 2015 speech, and dined with Vladimir Putin. Manafort, of course, has deep and abiding ties with the Russian government via Ukraine. Carter Page was well known to the FBI because he'd been previously recruited by Russian spies. And then there was Papadopoulos. 
the young, inexperienced campaign aide whose wine-fueled conversation with the Australian ambassador set off the investigation. Before hacked Democratic emails appeared online, he had seemed to know that Russia had political dirt on Mrs. Clinton. So if you recall, Papadopoulos had apparently dined with a London professor who was an agent of Moscow who said that he had access to all these emails. And then Papadopoulos was talking to the Australian ambassador, and he said, by the way, I know that the Russians have these emails. And so the Australian ambassador called up the FBI and they said, um, guys, Russia's interfering in your election. And then the FBI went over and interviewed this guy. So does it sound like the FBI has done anything wrong in investigating these people? Now, you're looking at all the information, looking at what they knew at the time. Let's say that it had been Hillary Clinton and a top campaign aide to Hillary Clinton. Let's say that Hillary Clinton's future national security advisor had been paid by Russia today. Let's say that Hillary Clinton's campaign chair had been deep in bed with Vladimir Putin. Let's say that a low-level foreign policy staffer had been working with the Russians to bring across material about Donald Trump. Would you have said the FBI ought to investigate that? Of course you would have said the FBI ought to investigate that because the FBI ought to investigate that, right? I mean, they didn't do anything wrong in, in, in launching the investigation as far as I can tell. Even if you believe that they used shoddy information to go after Carter Page, that is a slightly different contention than saying that the entire investigation never should have been launched and was a witch hunt from the very beginning. Okay, now, what exactly did they do? Apparently, they said that they had embedded a, an informant uh, deep in this piece. It says, the FBI obtained phone records and other documents using national security letters, a secret type of subpoena, officials said, and at least one government informant meant several times with Carter Page and, and George Papadopoulos. Current and former officials said, this has become a politically contentious point with Mr. Trump's allies questioning whether the FBI was spying on the Trump campaign or trying to entrap campaign officials. But the real question, again, is were they not aggressive enough? Were they too aggressive? I understand the, the sort of right-wing talking point that the FBI was out to get Trump, but it doesn't wash for me. Now, Kimberly Strassel makes the strongest case over at the Wall Street Journal. She says a few important points on that new New York Times hurricane crossfire piece. A story that, by the way, all of us following knew this had to be coming. This is the DOJ FBI leaker's attempt to get out in front of the facts that Devin Nunes is forcing out to make it not sound so bad. Don't buy it. It's bad. The biggest takeaway, government sources admit that, indeed, the Obama DOJ and FBI spied on the Trump campaign. Spied, because she's saying they had an informant. NYT slips in confirmation far down in its story and makes it out like it isn't a big deal. It is a very big deal. In self-serving desire to get a sympathetic story about its actions, DOJ FBI leakers are willing to provide yet more details about that top secret source, namely that the spying was aimed at Page and Papadopoulos, making it all more certain that they will be outed, which is on them. DOJ and the FBI have shredded what little credibility they have in claiming they cannot comply with Devin Nunes' subpoena. So Devin Nunes, the chair of the House Intelligence Committee, he subpoenaed the DOJ and the FBI for all the information about the Trump campaign investigation, basically, and they've not been turning any of this over, saying that it's dangerous for them to turn it over. They should turn it over. This is a Congressional Oversight Committee. If it gets leaked, that's on the Congressional Oversight Committee, but the Oversight Committee exists for a reason. Kimberly Strassel continues, back in December, the New York Times assured us it was Papadopoulos' downer convo that inspired FBI to launch counterintelligence operation on July 31st, 2016. That would be the conversation between Papadopoulos, the, the low-level foreign policy advisor, and the Australian ambassador. This was convenient since it diminished the role of the dossier. However, now New York Times tells us FBI did not debrief Downer until August 2nd. And Nunes said no official intelligence from allies was delivered to FBI about that conversation prior to July 31st. So how did the FBI get those details? And what really did inspire the CI investigation. Okay, so now the implication that, that she is drawing is that the real reason that the investigation was launched was not this meeting between the Australian ambassador and George Papadopoulos, that it was not Papadopoulos that launched the Russia collusion investigation, that what originally launched it was the politically motivated dossier that had been paid for by Fusion GPS at the behest of the Hillary Clinton campaign. That still does not answer the question as to whether everything in that dossier is false. Okay, that has still not been confirmed. For people who say the dossier is all lies, all untruths, there's a bunch of stuff in there that is probably untrue. There's some stuff in there that is probably not untrue. And it's a mistake to simply dismiss facts because it's more convenient for the narrative to do so. Uh, finally, Kimberly Strassel says, on that, if you are wondering who narrated this story, no paragraphs that assure everybody that hardly anyone in the DOJ knew about the probe. Owen Comey was given few details. Nobody knew nothing. So he says that, that basically, she's basically suggesting that there are a bunch of people who are involved in this nefarious plan to take out Trump. I am not seeing the evidence that there are a lot of people involved in a nefarious plan to take out President Trump. Now, I will tell you in one second, what, what the nefarious plan actually was, like where it actually got nefarious. I don't think it got nefarious during the campaign. I do think it got nefarious after the campaign. I'll explain in just a second. First, you're going to have to go over to dailywire.com and subscribe. So for $9.99 a month, you can subscribe to dailywire.com. When you do, our really awesome giveaway right now is that if you subscribe today, like now, as in right now, if you subscribe right now, then you can get one of those last VIP tickets for Dallas or Phoenix because tonight it's open to everybody. And that means that 
the chance of you getting those tickets are a lot lower. So if you subscribe right now for $9.99 a month, you have a chance at the VIP tickets and, and getting your tickets early to the big event that is coming up in August uh, in, in Phoenix and Dallas. So check that out. Also, you can get the rest of the show live. Tomorrow we have the mailbag. You want to ask me questions in the mailbag, I'll only answer them if you pay me. That's the way it works. So check it out at dailywire.com when you subscribe for $9.99 a month. Also, the annual subscription is $99 a year, and you get this, the very greatest in beverage vessels, the leftist tiers, hot or cold tumbler. Look at its magnificence. Gaze upon its beauty and mourn that you have not one. Check it out. $99 a year, and you can have one, and then you will be refreshed both in body and in soul. So check that out right now. Uh, also, if you just want to listen later for free, go over to iTunes, go over to YouTube. Please subscribe. Please leave us a review. It always helps. We are the largest, fastest-growing conservative podcast in the nation. And also, please check out Daily Wire over at Apple News, because Apple News does indeed have all of our stories over there as well. Alrighty, so as I say, I am not fully convinced that this New York Times story about Hurricane Crossfire is this damning indictment of the FBI or the CIA, and that the FBI and CIA launched this investigation on zero grounds, and it was always a witch hunt designed to take down President Trump. In the same way, I don't believe the Russia collusion story. I also don't believe the FBI collusion story, that the FBI was colluding to take down Trump. I just don't buy it. Now, the DOJ is a different story, right? This is why I think it's important to know who in the DOJ knew what, when, because Loretta Lynch's DOJ was corrupt through and through, just as Eric Holder's DOJ was corrupt through and through. The Obama DOJ was just the most icely of, of law enforcement. It was, it was a wretched hive of scum and villainy, the Obama DOJ. It was just a garbage place. But that's a different story than the FBI and CIA. Should they have launched an investigation again? If Hillary Clinton had been surrounded by a bunch of people who appeared to be trying to do business with the Russians, and then Chelsea Clinton had had a meeting with a Russian lawyer promising dirt on Donald Trump, we'd all be like, uh, yeah, I'm glad there's an investigation going on. So I don't buy the, the investigation was launched under for prurient, nonsensical reasons. I, I, I don't buy that. Now, here's where it does get dirty. I think after the election happened, then a bunch of deep staters, meaning Obama holdovers, inside the FBI and CIA decided, you know what would be awesome? It would be great to undermine Trump's presidency by leaking out all of this information. Now, this, the excuse that they used for leaking is that Trump was going to come in. He was going to shut down the investigation and destroy the possibility of us uncovering all this collusion. Yeah, I think the reality is more like there are a bunch of people who are ticked that Hillary had lost. They did not expect Hillary to lose. They could not believe that this dunderheaded Trump was president and they were going to undermine him from day one by leaking a bunch of information that really was not criminal. It was not criminal for Michael Flynn to be talking to the Russian ambassador, Sergei Kislyak. That was not a criminal act. When he lied to the FBI, that was criminal, but it is not criminal for him to be on the phone with Sergei Kislyak about sanctions against Israel, for example. That's silly. But that's all the stuff that was leaking. I do think there are Obama holdovers who are leaking that sort of stuff. And I think that it is Obama holdovers who are now leaking a lot of the stuff with regard to Michael Cohen. I want to discuss in just a second the situation with Michael Cohen because there are a bunch of scurrilous leaks about Cohen that are coming out that I don't know why in the world they would be breaking except for relatively nefarious reasons. So here's the story. Today, it turns out that there's a, a long article by Ronan Farrow over at The New Yorker about about the, the Michael Cohen financial files. So there's a couple of stories about Michael Cohen that have come out in the last 24 hours. One is from the Washington Post. It says, a California man who says he served as a translator last year for Michael Cohen and a South Korean aerospace firm that paid Cohen's company 150 grand said Tuesday that FBI agents recently interviewed him. Mark Coe said in an email to the Washington Post, he spoke with the FBI about the arrangement a few weeks ago. Coe declined to provide details about investigators' inquiries, said he was unsure whether the agents were part of the probe led by special counsel Robert Mueller. So apparently Cohen was trying to go after South Korean cash. And now there's a story from The Intercept, which is a very anti-Trump outlet, saying in the blink of a Michael Avenetti tweet, Ahmed al-Rumaihi has suddenly found himself internet famous. It began on Sunday evening when the attorney for adult film star Stormy Daniels posted a screenshot of video footage from Trump's tower lobby recorded on December 12, 2016. Viral speculation followed with online detectives identifying al-Rumaihi, the former head of a $100 billion wing of the Qatari Sovereign Wealth Fund, in the image and linking him to a Qatar-Russia deal to sell a portion of the oil company Rosneft which had been referenced in the Steele dossier. From there, Slate took over, headlining a piece, Michael Cohen's meeting with Michael Flynn and a Qatari diplomat might be the key to unlocking the Steele dossier, the suggestion being that Qatar was trying to bribe Michael Cohen to broker basically a business deal for the sale of, Rof's, of, of Rosneft. Apparently, Al-Rumaihi said that Cohen asked him for an upfront free fee of $1 million for his services in the midst of their conversation about a potential Qatari investment in U.S. infrastructure. The question is, how's Michael Avenetti getting all this stuff? Right? How is it that all of these news outlets are obtaining the financial records of Michael Cohen? And according to Ronan Farrow, the answer is that 
uh, that somehow people were afraid that these documents were going to be destroyed. Now, this was the same excuse that was being used with regard to the leaks about the Mueller investigation before it was the Mueller investigation. Well, it was just the FBI investigation into Russian collusion. The excuse for leaks was Trump's going to come in. He's going to destroy all the documents. Trump's going to come in. He's going to shut down James Comey and the FBI. Trump's going to come in and all this is going to come to a screeching halt. So we got to leak this stuff. We got to preserve the information and distribute it. Well, now they're doing the same thing with regard to Michael Cohen's financial records. There's only one problem. There's not really a threat that Michael Cohen's financial records are disappearing. Benjamin Wittes, okay, who's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute and the editor of Lawfare Blog, he is not a Trump acolyte. He says, quote, I've been thinking about this New Yorker story on financial records missing from a government database. I don't want to rain on anybody's parade here, but color me at least a little bit skeptical. Assume for a moment that some records of Cohen's tra transactions are in fact missing. That doesn't mean the transactions themselves have disappeared. Only the Treasury Department's record of the back reports on the transactions are gone from the database. So when Bob Mueller or the SDNY, the Southern District of New York, subpoenas the bank, as they surely have done already, for the records of all of Cohen's transactions, those transaction records will still be there and they'll be turned over. Moreover, the, bank's sure, uh, the bank surely still has records of the transactions themselves. So I doubt very much there's a material loss to Mueller or the SDNY in any pending investigation, even if there has been, in fact, some data lost within the government. Moreover, were such a data loss to be discovered and the destruction were intentional and malicious, that would be traceable and that would be prosecutable, presumably. So the, this excuse that is being used to go after Michael Cohen is obviously an excuse as well. So this is why I say, it's not that there's no corruption. It's that the corruption is not where you're looking for the corruption. The corruption is in the leaks. The corruption is in distributing information to the press that should not be in the hands of the press. The, the corruption is in the post-election attempt to destroy Donald Trump by leaking a bunch of information that has not been confirmed, that has not been verified, and that has not been traced to any sort of real collusion. That's the real problem here, not the investigation itself. So the investigation itself, I think, was probably generated along correct lines. We'll see how it was, how it was pursued. It is possible that prosecutors were overzealous in how they pursued it with regard to, for example, the Carter Page FISA warrant. We'll find that out. That's what Devin Nunes believes. He believes that the, the going theory is that the FBI and the CIA were basically working to go after the Trump campaign in malicious fashion by garnering warrants on scurrilous bases in order to discredit. Well, the Carter Page FISA warrant came about after the election, so maybe that's true. Maybe there's a possibility of that. That's not the same thing as saying the investigation itself was launched in, in nasty fashion or for no reason at all. It's not the same thing as saying the entire investigation is inherently tainted. That's, that's a different argument. And I think we ought to be very specific about these arguments so that we can be as factual as possible. None of this, of course, means that actual collusion took place. There was intent to collude on the part of Donald Trump Jr., pretty clearly. But that is not the same thing as a crime because collusion itself has a statutory definition that includes conspiracy. And the conspiracy just doesn't exist here. There's no information changing hands. There's no impact on the election. And therefore, there's not a lot to say about it other than an attempt to discredit Trump and his victory in the first place. Okay, meanwhile, the Democrats continue to struggle for air. So their generic ballot lead is now down to 4.7% in the latest Real Clear Politics poll average. This is because the Democrats have staked everything on the Russia investigation. It, it, what's amazing about the Democrats is how dumb they are. So after Trump was elected, if the Democrats had any brains at all, what they could have done is they could have come around and said, hey, you know, Mr. President, you seem like a pretty swell guy. And you gave a lot of money to us in the past and we feel like we can work with you. You're a good guy and York guy. We can get some deals done. Sure, here, look, let's, let's just do some nationalized health care. Just a little bit. Let's do some nationalized health care. The chances that Trump signed that would have been about 53%. Okay, because Trump is not an ideological conservative. He's governed as a conservative. One of the reasons he has governed as a conservative is because the Democrats have decided that he is Satan and he must be destroyed from without. Well, they have nothing else to offer other than we hate Trump and uh, Russia and Michael Avenetti and Stormy Daniels. Stormy Daniels, by the way, who is uh, making a literal bare ass of herself. I mean, she is, she's literally going to go to a, a there, there's a, apparently a statue of President Trump naked uh, in Seattle or something, and she's going to go do a lap dance with the naked statue of Trump. I can't imagine why people aren't taking the Stormy Daniels stuff seriously. It seems to me that she's a very serious person deserving of nothing but intellectual respect. And also, yeah, she's going to go spank a, a naked statue with a, with a magazine. But other than that, I think totally, yes. Michael Avenetti, sure, he's threatening journalists online, we're merely reporting on him. But I think that he's a real legit figure. These are all real legit people. The Democrats have staked their entire for fortune and, and, and their political fate on Michael Avenetti and Stormy Daniels. Good luck with that. Well, they don't really have much choice because their alternative is to say things like Keith Ellison. So Keith Ellison, who is almost the head of the DNC, Democratic representative from Minnesota, he actually made the case yesterday we ought to regulate employer pay. So we have a booming economy. Incomes are rising. Like in real terms, they're rising. The economy is reaching historic heights. And Keith Ellison's solution is 
we should use the government to force employers to pay particular wages on the upper end and the lower end. Yeah, I can't imagine why people don't trust Democrats to run the government. I mean, this is not a big secret to shareholders. It's not a big secret to boards of directors. Don't you need direct government intervention? Are you favoring the government actually regulating the relationship between CEO pays and the average worker? I think it's a very good idea, and I think we should start talking about it. Okay, so great. I'm, I'm glad the Democrats are coming out of the woodwork. Well done, guys. Just keep going. Keep going. It's amazing. They're so far to the left that they don't even understand. They're, they're blowing their greatest opportunity for a re-entry to power that they've had in, in quite a while. Okay, time for some things I like and then some things I hate and then a quick Bible review. So, things I like. So, yesterday uh, or Sunday, I believe, uh, Tom Wolfe died, the novelist Tom Wolfe. Uh, there's another really terrible death today, Richard, Richard Pipes, who's a terrific historian of Russia. I, I'll recommend one of his books tomorrow on the show, probably. Uh, but Tom Wolfe was, of course, one of the great nonfiction journalists of the 20th century. Uh, he's also a very good novelist. Uh, his, his first huge book was Bonfire to the Vanities. As I said yesterday, the first half of this book is just tremendous. The second half of the book uh, kind of bogs down a little bit, but the first half, it, you read it as a conservative, you're like, wow, this is, this is a gutsy book. I mean, the book begins with a kind of yuppie leftist liberal character driving into uh, a, a heavily black area and being, and being so afraid of crime that he promptly runs over a black guy near his car and then he hit and runs him. Uh, and, the, and the book begins with an attempted race riot by an Al Sharpton character. It's, just, it's an intense book. It's an intense book. Go check out Bonfire of the Vanities. Uh, Tom Wolfe was always a great social satirist and this obviously uh, is evident in Bonfire of the Vanities. So check that out. Okay, other things that I like. Well, one of the things that is obvious about the Trump administration's decision to move the embassy in Israel to Jerusalem is that this should actually facilitate peace because it may take off the table an area of contention that should not be an area of contention. Israel is not going to stop existing. Israel is not going to give up Jerusalem. Bibi Netanyahu makes that point yesterday on Vice. Vice, of course, their coverage of Israel has been absolutely egregiously awful. But here's Bibi Netanyahu making what is a very fine point on Vice. Because a peace that's based on lies will crash on the rocks of Middle East reality. Mm. And it's time to, to tell the Palestinians, abandon your fantasy of destroying Israel. Abandon the fantasy that you will conquer Jerusalem. Abandon the fantasy that says Israel will disappear. It will not. Good. Well, the, the, he's exactly right. The left would prefer a, a false peace based on false promises than they would a real peace based on realities on the ground because then they don't get to paint their false moral picture of what's actually happening in the Middle East. Okay, time for a quick thing that I hate. So good news. The Democrats can't call Hamas terrorists. They say that there was a bunch of innocent people shot on the border, even after Hamas suggested that it was not. It was a bunch of Hamas terrorists. Uh, they won't call MS-13 terrorists or, or animals. They'll say that, 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 that MS-13, they're just a bunch of natural illegal immigrants, I guess. I mean, I, I don't know how else to take their interpretation of President Trump's comments. And now Debbie Wasserman Schultz has labeled the real terrorists. She's, she did an interview with the Huffington Post and she says, quote, the NRA is kind of just shy of a terrorist organization. They've done everything they can to perpetuate the culture of violence that we have in our country with the spread of assault weapons across the nation. Good job, Democrats. Well done. So just to get this straight, Hamas, not terrorists. MS-13, not animals. NRA members, terrorists. No, you're not alienating the American public at all. You're not alienating the American public at all when you say that law-abiding gun owners are the real terrorists, but Hamas terrorists who use babies as human shields are not terrorists. By the way, there's that story about a, an eight-month-old baby that died in the, in the crossfire uh, in Gaza or, or died after, after being exposed to tear gas. And the question I asked yesterday is why that baby was anywhere near the tear gas in the first place. Who takes a baby to a protest where you know that, it, that it's a riot, essentially? Who does that? Beyond that, there's a doctor who's now reporting the baby actually died of a pre-existing medical condition. So it had nothing to do with the tear gas in the first place. Didn't stop the media from reporting it. They buried it in paragraph 15, I believe, of a New York Times report yesterday. So well done, media, all the way through. Yes, you want to talk about political polarization? It started before Trump. It will last after Trump. The left is pushing it in a really heavy way. It ain't just Trump who's, who's, the, who's the creator of the sort of political polarization we're seeing. Okay, so uh, it's a Thursday, which means that I'm going to do a little bit of Bible talk. Normally, I do that on Wednesday, but I'm a day late. Tough. Deal with it. So uh, we're going through the Bible. Yesterday, last week, we did the first chapter of Joshua. So I'm going through it chapter by chapter because we've already gone through the five books of Moses. We did that, I think, last year. So now we're going through the story of Joshua. So Joshua 2 is the story of Rahab. Rahab was the, the whore that was in, in Jericho, and Joshua and the Jews invade the land. And when they get to Jericho, which is a walled city, Joshua and some of his other spies uh, they go into, well, some of the spies of Joshua, they go into Rahab's whorehouse, essentially, and the and people are looking for them. 
and they and she she advises them on how they can get into the city. And she says, now that I've advised you on how to get in the city and how I'm going to hide you, and she hides them, then I'm going to um, I'm going to need your protection. And here's what it says. This is Joshua 2, 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. The reason that I read this is because it's actually a really bad description of why you ought to believe in God. Uh, there's this, you know, the reason that she is saying that people are believing in God is because God is demonstrating his mastery through human beings. It is a bad reason to believe in God. However, it is also a very common reason to believe in God. And putting the fear of God in someone is not just a phrase. Putting the fear of God in someone requires Western civilization to stand up for itself. It is not just enough for you to say, my principles are my principles and I stand here on my principles. When you are fighting evil people, you have to protect yourself. When you are fighting evil people, you have to demonstrate that you are capable of winning. That is why what Israel is doing, that's why what America does in the world, it matters. It matters on a military level. Okay, Truth, Truthful propositions are not self-evident. And for the vast majority of people over the vast majority of history, they've not been self-evident. That does not mean you should be an aggressor. It does mean that if you strongly defend your own values, either rhetorically or if you're put under threat physically, people are more likely to believe that what you're saying is true. Okay, we'll be back here tomorrow with all the latest and with the mailbag. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. The Ben Shapiro Show is produced by Senya Villarreal, executive producer Jeremy Boring, senior producer Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover, and our technical producer is Austin Stevens, edited by Alex Ingaro. Audio is mixed by Mike Caramina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire Ford Publishing production. Copyright Ford Publishing 2018. We'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.